In this podcast, we move into chapter 11, the most challenging chapter in Daniel. And it is also the most specific recording of future history. The events of history, from the fall of Alexander to Cleopatra's wedding, are recorded many years before they occur. And once again, the primary lesson we take is, God is in control, so we can live in the midst of chaos knowing we are in His hands. The other and equally important truth is that we are to be busy for Him, sharing the message of hope and comfort we have received. Welcome to a series on the Book of Daniel. This podcast is presented by Sefer Audio Productions in conjunction with Foothill Bible Church of Lincoln, California. These messages are presented as part of the Adult Sunday School program. Your speaker is Pastor Jeff Cragen. Now let's step into the classroom as the session is about to begin. Like the war in heaven, this too will come to an end. The demon who strove to influence the throne of Persia had kept him from calling to Daniel with a vision. It had been three weeks earlier when he had been called by God, blessed be his name, to appear before the throne in heaven. He had been instructed by the Lord to carry a vital prophecy to Daniel a response to a prayer that had just started coming up before the throne. Well, this shouldn't be too difficult a task. All he had to do was fly down to the capital of Persia, find Daniel, and deliver the message. But for some reasons, things are never quite as simple as they seem, as they should be. And he sometimes asked himself, why should serving God, blessed be his name, be so difficult and so painful? As he drew near the palace, waiting for him was that vile demon who was constantly trying to interfere with God's plans. He knew the creature had previously tried to prevent the Jews from receiving permission to return to the land and begin the temple's restoration, but he had prevented that from happening, so now the demon was really furious. There was no way that abomination was going to let him get to Daniel with the Lord's message, and so for three weeks they fought back and forth and God's messenger struggled to get through to Daniel. But praise God, blessed be his name, Michael had arrived on the scene. And with the authority of the Lord and his high rank in the hosts of heaven, he had overcome the demon, opening the way for the messenger to finally come to Daniel with the word of the Lord. And so the angel had arrived, bringing with him God's message to Daniel. Michael had aided him to overcome the demon who stood next to the throne of the king of Persia, And now Daniel would hear the word of the Lord, and what was it? War on earth. So, we come to what Boyce considers the most important prophecy in the book, and I would say, therefore, one of the most important prophecies in Scripture as a whole. And the reason he feels this way is because this is the longest and most detailed, which, by the way, has also made it one of those ones that's fairly controversial, and those who reject scripture really want to reject the possibility of anything supernatural happening. Now this prophecy runs chapter 10, 11, and 12. The first and the last are the introduction and the close to the vision, which is in chapter 11, and takes 45 verses, 11, 2 through 12, 4. And that's the vision itself. Now we already looked at the introduction last week, So this passage, which is primarily chapter 11, is highly technical in recording the future history, and that's why it's not addressed that often, and that's why I'm going to 
be fairly Reader's Digest condensed version because it's fairly complex to deal with. So I'm not going to cover all the specifics, but I'm going to talk about each section. And so you're going to have to put up with some detail this morning. And what's most important here, though, again, is not all the specifics, but the realization that what happens in the world's political scene is not unexpected by God. In fact, God is in control. He either allows or puts into place everything that we see happening on the political field, but especially as it relates to and how it affects the Hebrew people. Second, it is clear that everything is in God's hands and his primary purpose and concern is with Israel and, by extension, his bigger plans, which include our salvation and the restoration of all creation. Because that affects both Israel and us. So, just like his whole focus isn't on our personal salvation and his whole focus isn't on the restoration of Israel, it encompasses all of that and the restoration of all of creation. So it's bigger than the sum of its parts. What we hope when we look at this kind of thing is that we take home the realization that we don't have anything to fear in the big picture. Now, I'm not saying we're not going to be concerned about how all this craziness is going, but we don't have to be fearful about that. You know, I hear people say, I'm going to leave because of the text. I'm saying, if God tells me to leave, I'm leaving. But other than that, it's not my option. It doesn't matter what's going on around us. We are to be where God has us, and we get to move if God tells us to move. And if he doesn't, then I say to him, okay, but you've got to take care of the bill then. Right? But this should give us that comfort. See, nothing happens outside of his will. And that becomes the foundation of our faith, our hope, knowing that he is in control and that if we depend on him, nothing will happen in our lives outside of his will. Now, that can be a little scary considering some of the things that happen in our lives. But if he allows them, he allows them for his glory and our blessing. And while we don't always see the blessing when we're in the middle of it, we'll understand that when we go home to be with him. And finally, you know, we're given the opportunity to be one of the threads in the loom of history. That is, we're included in God's overall plan. We're privileged to be his instruments in whatever he involves us in locally, in our own lives. In a world that is ruled by the enemy, but only because he allows it. And as we see, as you go through scripture, you see, even when the enemy acts, God takes his actions and uses them for his own purpose, which has got to be frustrating for him. But an encouragement for us. I think we're going to see that, especially when we get to Judges. I love Judges because it's a history of the fact that God uses losers, so there's hope for us. In a world controlled by the enemy is one in which we will always find war on earth because his goal is chaos. Now, one other point, when we're looking at Daniel here, we're going to be using, again, that concept of the prophetic past tense a lot. And remember, what the prophetic past tense is simply means that God talks about future events 
in the past tense because from God's perspective, if he says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. It might as well have already happened. And that, by the way, is the reason some people have problems interpreting these prophecies and try to put them in the past because they confuse the future past tense or the prophetic past tense with actual past tense. And so you have to be careful when you read these things. It does get a little, I will say, complicated at times. So let me quote Boyce when he talks about this specific section. The revelation has three parts. That fact helps us understand the more difficult portions. The first part deals with the history of the Near East from the time of Daniel up to the appearance of Antiochus Epiphanes, whose coming had already been prophesied in earlier chapters. The second part concerns the career of Antiochus himself. Then there is the third part, which is the most difficult. It concerns either Antiochus, the early history of the Roman Empire, or, as I believe, events that are yet to come. And I think that's the best understanding. A reason this is of such importance is because it is the most specifically detailed passage in prophecy, which is why it creates so much problem for the liberals. Because if it's written when it was actually written, then the only way possible to understand it is it had to come from God, because it really is specific history pre-written. This isn't vagaries, well, until you get to the third section, then that's a whole other thing. They want to date it during the time of the Maccabees, about 165 BC, because that takes them past Antiochus and right up to, to the, his end. After all, there's no way we can know the future. And you're right, there isn't. But since for God it's already happened, he can tell us. It's a lot like, you know, our friends in Korea, I keep trying to get them to tell me what happened on Wednesday in the stock market because they're already in Thursday, but for some reason it just doesn't work that way. But for God it does. This is where we get back to all kinds of tiny whiny stuff. So we already learned that Antiochus Epiphanes rises out of the Greek Empire. He's one of the last major figures to rise out of that empire before its collapse under Rome. So this means in this passage we're moving from the Media Persia Empire. Remember how it went with the original vision of Nebuchadnezzar. You have Babylon. Babylon's defeated by the Media Persia Empire. The Media Persia Empire is sort of a conglomerate made up of two empires, one stronger than the other. They fold under Alexander the Great. Alexander rises into power. And this one begins with that movement from Media Persia into the divided Greek Empire after the time of Alexander. So, let me read this first section, starting in chapter 11, verse 2. And this is the angel sharing the vision with Daniel. Now, I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be greater than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule a great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he is arisen, the kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority which, which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, 
but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. I think I'll quit at this point, because we're all going, huh? I warned you. Oh. So, the angel says, first of all, God is sharing with Daniel all the things that are going to happen, which he says he's going to do, right? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. That does not mean he's going to tell us when he's coming back, by the way, just as a side note. So, what we have here is this period where we're seeing the rise of Antiochus. And so the angel says that there's going to be three more kings in Persia after Cyrus. They'll be followed by an extremely wealthy king. And these four are Cambyseus, Gautmata, Darius the Great, and the fourth is Xerxes, who reigns from 485 to 464. So you can identify in history who makes up these four. And it's during this period that the Persians attempt to take over Greece. Now that doesn't work too well because of Alexander the Great. And he rises up against the Persian Empire and it falls on him to defend Greece. So you move from the second Gentile kingdom on the figure, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw, to the third, which is Greece. And so there's nothing new up to this point that this vision encompasses except to be a little more specific. Each vision gives a bit more detail. These are really progressive visions. They give a bit more detail of and fill in the same things that started way back off with Nebuchadnezzar's vision. And so God is spelling out how the media Persian Empire is going to fall and how Greece is going to rise. And what happens is even though Alexander is a great power and he really does unify the world, he also dies very young. And he leaves no heir and he can't hold the empire together. And so what happens, it's divided up between four of his generals. So even though Greece was an extremely powerful nation, it's really not a nation, it's a nation made up of subgroups. And Alexander can't hold it together and so it's divided. What happens is it's ruled by four of his generals but two of them are more powerful than the four as a whole. And so the four are uh, Antipater, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. And these are great world <coughs> powers, and that's what these visions have been looking at. Big empire. But now it focuses in just on the two powers that are the most successful of those generals, and that's Seleucus over Syria, and Ptolemy over Egypt. And so you don't normally think about it, but this is Greek powers, ends up being tied specifically to Syria and to Egypt. Now it gets more interesting. So it gets more and more specific, and again, it takes too much time to get into all the detail. But if you were picking up at verse 9, then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall, not, uh, shall return to his own land, and the sun shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, 
which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the way as far as his fortress. What happens is Ptolemy's daughter, Bernice, where do they get these names? So if you named your daughter Bernice, marries Theos Assyria, creating an alliance between the two groups. But because of the infighting between families, this starts to sound like Dallas. Bernice gets poisoned. She gets avenged by her brother who attacks Syria. And so just as Daniel writes many years before, the alliance between the two powers is very short-lived. And the war continues between the powers. So Syria is brought low. So it's back and forth. Syria, Egypt. Syria, Egypt. By the time you get to verse 14... We read, in these times, many shall arise against the king of the south, and the violence among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the visions, but they shall fail. So what happens is Israel gets caught in the middle of all of this. And finally, they get a little tired of the whole thing, and so they rise up and rebel. Now, I'm sorry, Israel is not what it once was. For them to rise up and rebel and, and get caught in the middle of this fight was really dumb. So they decide to rebel against the Egyptian dominion, and once they had fared relatively well, the uprising was headed by a certain Tobias. That undertaking was bringing trouble upon them, the trouble that had been prophesied in the visions of Daniel, and the uprising was on the part of the Jews proved abortive. Now, the important thing to pick up from all of this is, not that it's ancient history, because I am not into the history of that period. I've always liked Egyptian history when I was a kid because I like the pyramids and the art and all that stuff. But I'm not a big fan of ancient history. The important thing to pick up from this is all of this was established in God's hands that he knew before all of this came to pass, he wrote down in detail what was going to happen. It's too bad some of them didn't read it. And this is what we find going on all through scripture, don't we? This is one of the reasons we can say God is faithful. Because we can see in Scripture clearly where God has says this is going to happen and years or tens of years or hundreds of years later it happens. Exactly the way he said it was. And of course the most obvious example are all the Old Testament prophecies related specifically to the first coming of Christ and how literally they were fulfilled, right? So we can trust God for our future because we have irrefutable evidence over hundreds of years to demonstrate the reality of who he is. Why do you think this is the area that the critics attack with the most energy? Because this is the part that if they could somehow show couldn't happen, would destroy everything. But they can't because it proves everything. So this stuff, even though it's hard to wade through, should be a great source of comfort to us and give us confidence. Secondly, world history, past or future, revolves around Israel, not the church. Oh yes, there were major battles, mostly theological between the different sects and orthodoxy. Did Jesus own his coat or didn't he? Because that has a major impact on how we look at property, right? And so that was a great medieval debate. If you really want to wade through something, read uh, 
The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco, which is a fantastic book. And part of it is about a, a conference called together by the Franciscans, I think, and the Dominicans over Did Jesus Own His Coat or Not? Also deals a lot with the book of Revelation, so be prepared. But in spite of that, most of world history revolves around the Middle East, doesn't it? Even when church gets involved, where do we get involved in the crusade? In the Middle East, around Israel. And so all that Daniel's being given, as much as it's talking about the time of the Gentiles and giving what was then future history, it was because all of this was impacting Israel. Otherwise, it wouldn't have bothered with it. And why is Israel the center of history? Because of the only two important events in history that really matter. The first coming, which took place in Judea, right? Where the Messiah came out of Israel. And what? The second coming. What's the second coming about? When he comes back to restore the nation Israel. And we continue to be in parentheses. Big parentheses, but in parentheses. Our parentheses is getting to the point where it's longer than the history of Israel, but it's still a parentheses. And so the first event that history centers around has already occurred. The second one is the one we're waiting for, and Israel is in smack dab in the middle of both. Anyway, back to the text. Picking up at verse 15. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the focus of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there will be no strength to stand. But he who comes up against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with the destruction in his hand, and he shall set his face to come with strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring the terms of an agreement and perform them. And he shall give him the daughter of a woman to destroy the kingdom, and it shall not stand or be to his advantage. And afterwards he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back on him, and then he shall turn his face back towards the fortress of his own land, and he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. And here's where we come up to an interesting individual. It's an arranged marriage, and it's set up to create an alliance between Syria and Egypt. But that wasn't the intent of the king. The king was planting his daughter in Egypt. And so the king here on the north is Antiochus III, not Epiphanes. And so he desires to plant his daughter to make an ally. And his daughter, wait for it, Cleopatra. Shakespeare comes into this. If you haven't read Shakespeare in the original Klingon, I suggest you all. <laughs> anyway, into the house of the king of the south, Ptolemy Epiphanes. And if you're familiar, you know with, much with history, you know much to the chagrin of Antiochus, Cleopatra is faithful to her husband, not her father. And so now we can talk about the face of history turning up in the Bible, right? Now we have Cleopatra down in Egypt, who's faithful to her husband, Ptolemy. And so we're moving into... A, Part of history that we're more familiar with, right? Thanks to Elizabeth Taylor. Mm. <laughs> yeah, anyway. So, 
You might not be surprised that as Cleopatra's found here, history is moving towards the rise of the Roman Empire and the fall of the Grecian Empire. Rome proceeds onto the scene. And in this context, remember Syria and Egypt. Egypt had a problem with having leaders that weren't Egyptian. This was another case. Syria and Egypt are overseen by Greece. They were, represent the last two kingdoms of Greece that were taken after the fall of Alexandria. And therefore, that's why they're pictured as part of the Greek Empire in terms of prophecy. Because these are the generals of Alexander. So with their fall, we have one who arises before that, and that is the one who's the picture of the Antichrist. And that's Antiochus Epiphanes, because he comes out of those four generals, and he becomes a power in Greece. And that's where you move into the second part of the prophecy, beginning in verse 20 where we see this individual rise onto the scene. Now, remember, his name means the God made manifest. So, oh yeah, he, he suffered from false humility. He becomes the great persecutor of God's people. Well, why would that be? Well, if he's presenting himself as the God made manifest, then everybody needs to worship me, right? And he doesn't need people running around who are worshiping God. So now you can see, again, why this history is included. Because it has a direct impact on the Hebrew. And this individual, he is the little horn. He's the one who moves into history. And he does so by intrigue, trickery, and false diplomacy. That sounds a lot like politicians. Oh. <laughs> it's the same way, and this is why he is the foreshadowing, it's the same way the Antichrist will finally take power. So there is a similarity. We read it back in Daniel 7, 8, where we first were introduced to him. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. So he's the last power of the Grecian Empire before it completely falls, even though we're talking about somebody who's really outside of what we would define as Greek proper. Anyway, he uses the tools of a politician, or at least a dishonest one, and he builds up his military strength, and he wants to invade Egypt. And that's when we're talking north and south, remember, we're talking about directions related to Israel. What's south of Israel? Egypt, right? So he wants to move in. He's got his own issues. He wants to keep Rome down. And so what he wants to do is he wants to move into Egypt. He builds up his military strength. He moves into Egypt. <sighs> And for a while, he's sort of successful, and then he loses. And so he has to return to his own land in humiliation. And now this is the God-made manifest, right? Has been humiliated. Now, knowing what you know about politicians who lose and are humiliated, they usually don't receive it very well, do they? Uh, he didn't. And so according to the vision 
this respite where he removes from the scene doesn't last. And we see what happens picking up in verse 29. At the time appointed, notice, that's an important word right there, appointed. What does that mean? That means when God said this was going to happen, we keep coming back to all of this is going on because God is choosing who, how, and when. And he still does that. And believe me, if you were living in this day, you'd be going, well, how could God put somebody like an Antiochus on the throne and let him do these things? I don't know. He had his reasons. How could he let whatever election you happen to not like go this way? Because he allowed it and he has his reasons. Are we going to trust him for it? That's the real question, isn't it? So what happens? At the appointed time, we read in 29, he shall return and come into the south. It talks about his movement into Egypt. But it shall not be this time as it was before. In other words, he's going to do even worse. For ships of kitten shall come up against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and he shall turn back and be enraged and take action, what? Against the holy covenant. What does that mean? It means what happened in history. Antiochus went into Egypt. He was defeated again. And this time, it's because Rome showed up with her ships and he didn't even want to get into a fight with them. And so he flees. If he was humiliated the last time, he's even more humiliated this time because this time he didn't even lose a battle. He ran for it. And so what happens? Well, he's got to take out his anger on somebody. And who does he take it out on? Israel. Enough is enough. And because of hatred of God and God's people, they were the someone he was going to take it out on. And so what happens? He comes to Jerusalem. He comes to the people. He comes to the temple. And his great sins against the Lord come out in his anger and the humiliation over his inability to control Egypt and eventually Rome. And so he declares war on little old Israel. Don't they always get the blame for everything? The Jews are behind the economic collapse. The Jews are behind this. The Jews are... And by the way, he eventually loses to the Maccabees and Judas Maccabee who have a successful rebellion and they cleanse the temple and they restore the sacrifice all in preparation for the appearance of the Messiah, which eventually happens. Mm-hmm. But not before he destroys the temple, stops the sacrifice, puts up the abomination of desolation, round one, round two is yet to come. So you can see how he foreshadows. But as we've talked about in here, if you get into this discussion with anybody you want to say, oh, this stuff happened in 70 AD, and all this stuff, you know, with the final destruction of the temple, you can always, and see it says right here in scripture, yeah, but it also says that the nation then, once this thing comes to an end, is going to be restored, and the Messiah is going to rule, and all these things are going to happen. And uh, none of that's happened. So obviously, we're talking two different things here. They look similar. That's what happens with prophecies that foreshadow others. They look similar. It's like talking about holy matrimony in marriage. They look similar. 
but they're not the same thing. One is getting married on God's law, the other one's writing a contract on the civil law. They're not the same thing, but they look similar. And we need to make the distinctions if you're going to understand prophecy at all. So, we've got Antiochus Epiphanes. Now we come to the next section, which is even more difficult. But wait, there's more. The vision isn't quite finished, <coughs> but I figure I need another week to look at that. Because <laughs> this is complicated enough. So, just so that you'll know there's hope. In a few more weeks, we'll be looking at Joshua Judges, things that are easier to get through than this stuff. By the way, I was listening to, one nice thing about having Amazon Echo, it's linked to the Bible app, so you can listen to and read scripture. And I'm listening to him read Joshua, and I think, boy, there's a whole bunch of chapters here I'm going to be able to skip, which is the description of who gets what piece of land. <laughs> I'm not going to spend the time on that, I guarantee you right now. So if you're reading ahead, don't panic. Uh, <laughs> I almost did. But anyway, so <laughs> I want to come back to the real issues that we need to take from this, because I just gave you a real quick history <coughs> lesson, and there will be tests on that later, so you may want to read it history textbook. God is sovereign. And I can't reiterate that enough these days. Because if you read the newspapers or the bizarre postings on Facebook, uh, you wouldn't think so. But he is. My one real hope that we may survive a bit longer here is we seem to be going back to supporting Israel in the midst of whatever else craziness is going on. Okay. But God is sovereign. God is in control. He's in control of all history, of all nations. All political activity eventually fulfills his purpose. And we do not have to understand why things go the way they do. What are we called to do as Christians? We are called to place ourselves in the authority of the government, whatever government that is. And I always go back to the people that wrote those things were living under Rome at a time where Christians were being used as accent lighting. And if they're the ones that are saying we are to pray for our leaders, we are to pray for the government, we are to obey the law, then I guess we probably are supposed to do that. And that means Christians on either side of offense need to be treating the leadership that they don't agree with, with respect. Not that they have to agree. Not that they can't talk about their disagreements. That's not the issue. The issue is, as Christians, we need to present as having a focus on something that's more important, which is God and his word, and praying for our leaders, and represent civility that's lacking. I don't care where you stand on these issues. This is true for all of us. And if we're not doing that, we're not being who God's called us to be. Because God is in control. God is sovereign. God is in control of history, of nations, of political activity. It's all going to be used in the long run to fulfill his purposes. Either to bring his judgment or to bring his blessing. But to fulfill his purposes. History isn't circular. Yes, there are nations that rise and fall in similar patterns, and in that sense you can see the circle of history. But it's still all moving 
forward. It moved towards the first coming, and it's moving towards the second coming and the conclusion of all of history. After all, he turned the whole Roman Empire upside down so a young couple that were expecting a baby could show up in Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. Luke 2, 1 and 3. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered and all went to be registered, each in his own town. Now, if God can turn the entire known world upside down to get two people to get to Bethlehem, you know, the big picture, right? And believe me, you should have heard the complaints. I'm a stupid government and I, I gotta spend all this money and I gotta go in and, and why are they doing it? You know, to get two little people over to Bethlehem. Mm, that's dumb. <laughs> it isn't a coincidence that the chaos in the world, the bulk of it still centers around the Middle East, doesn't it? Oh yeah, we've got... <clears throat> The mentally incompetent in North Korea. That's causing a bit of chaos. Who gets brought into that one? Russia. Where's Russia? North of Israel. Where's most of it going on? Syria, Libya, Iraq, Iran, all over there in the Middle East, right? It's always turning up somewhere else, too, because Satan's got the whole world in chaos. But if you clean it all up and straighten it all out, it'd still be going on in the Middle East, wouldn't it? Because it always does. And maybe we're back off from the cliff for five minutes just because we seem to be supporting Israel again. And what did God say to Abraham? I will bless those that bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. And that never changed. Is Israel such a wonderful people? No, I mean, I am, but Jesus is a whole. God keeps his word. Why? Because he made it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not because the Hebrew people were deserving. Oh, and by the way, he saves us because he promised he would for Christ's sake, not because we're deserving. Right? And so, it continues on. It's been the focus of... Why do you think there's all that oil? And by the way, there's more oil up in Alaska than, probably than the Middle East if we started drilling it. But, <laughs> which also shows it's really about something else, doesn't it? You know, we can talk about, we're over there because of oil. Do you know how much oil we import from the Middle East? Hardly any of our oil comes from there. If we're going to the Middle East to war on oil, that's dumb because we get very little oil from the Middle East. That's not where people go. So, as we see the world fall into physical and moral degeneracy, yes, we may be seeing more handwriting on the wall. I'm not going to argue. It, this does seem a time that we've got more chaos going at a worldwide level. And now when we say worldwide, we actually mean worldwide, right? So does that mean Christ could be returning at any moment? Well, he could have been. That could be the case no matter what's going on, right? Because we're told that. Do we have some reason to think maybe it'll be sooner? Yeah. 
But if you go back and look at every other group of Christians back through history, and as they looked at the world around them, they always said, this is so bad that he could return at any moment. So every group has said that. Of course, inevitably one of them is going to be right, and it's going to be the last one when he returns. So maybe he was right this time, I don't know. It's like when you look for something, right? And it's always the last place you look. Of course it is, because you're not going to keep looking once you've found it. Oh. Somebody's going to be right someday. Yes. <laughs> but not with a specific date, because as I always say, he's not going to show up then because he doesn't want to make him look good. But at least when we say, do you think he can return at any time? We're always right, aren't we? Would it be nice? Yes. But the whole point is, what are we supposed to be doing? Because that's really what this is all about, isn't it? It's a security and confidence in him, and what are we supposed to be doing for him? Not whether he's going to show up in the next five minutes. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains came upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for the day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of day. We who are not of night or of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you're doing. So he says, don't worry about it. You know, you're supposed to be looking for his coming. You don't know when that's going to be, because it's going to be like a thief in the night, but not to be a surprise. You're to be looking for it. For what purpose? To build one another up and to encourage one another, not to sit around and look for setting dates, but to build one another up, encourage one another to what end to carry how does work until he shows up. That's the whole point. And remember, he's writing this to people who are literally looking for his coming any moment, so much so they're worried about what's going to happen to those who've already died because he just left a few years before, and so they're expecting him back. They're not in our place. It's, it's even more real for them than it is for us. But what's he saying? Just keep doing what you're doing. Keep busy for the Lord. Don't get all excited. Our primary calling is what? Love God, love others, make disciples. In that context, Paul's a tent maker. In that context, you do your work, you do your job, you plan for retirement if you live in our, because you don't want to live on the government, if you can avoid it. You do all of that, right? You share gospel wherever you have the opportunity. We take a vacation when you need one. Jesus took a break away from people, right? All with the intent of looking for his coming and being interrupted, being busy for him. And yeah, time is running out because we're all getting older. 
And so our opportunity, well, some of you are not even at the point of thinking about that yet, but some of us are getting older. <laughs> and so our time is running out to be busy for him, right? And you never know. You might step off a curb and get hit by a bike and go home. So, so be busy for him. And that's what all this should motivate us to do. See, Daniel's awareness of what was to come has no effect on the outcome. The fact that he knew future history didn't change anything. You know, the whole point about time travel is fear of doing something that will change the future. I'm sorry, Daniel knew exactly what was going to happen. Knowing that changed nothing. Right? Our understanding, or lack thereof, of prophecy has nothing to do with how it's going to be fulfilled or not be fulfilled because God's going to do it His way. That's why panentheism is the best way to go because it's all going to pan out in the end. Regardless of how we understand it, right? Yes, go ahead. Another factor that plays there is God's omniscience. Mm -hmm. It's already known by Him, so it's already a historical fact. It's not going to change. There's no surprises. It's already done. Yeah, when we do something, we can't believe we just did that. God, I'm sorry. God isn't running around saying, I can't believe she just did that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Already he already paid for it on the cross. See, our understanding of this is to do one thing. It's, well, a couple of Encourage us and motivate us. That's the whole point. Yes, time is running out. Whether it's for the present world or for us, I don't know. But again, what are we to do? Love God, love others, make disciples. Okay? It never changes. It hasn't changed in the last 2,000 years, and it won't change until he comes and interrupts us. Isn't that great? you got a job description you don't have to worry about. It's not going undergoing revision. How it's carried out, okay, that may change. But the job description itself, eh. So, as we look at the panorama of prophecy, that should play out in our understanding and strengthening our faith of his promises. God is a promise-keeping God. This program was already laid out and started to be spelled out in tiny details all the way back in the Garden of Eden when the fall occurred. The first hint, the first minor detail. And it lived in eternity with our joy and our fellowship with our God and Savior. Hebrews 6, 13-20 For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom he could swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes on oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, 
a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He is the one who speaks for us. How many people actually understand that they can build something that will last forever? You know, so many get excited about being on the ground floor of rising stock or a new or shaking product or a program that will change the world. Yeah, that really worked out really well, didn't it? And later find it's all meaningless. James 1, 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of a, the grass he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass its flowers falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now, how many of us actually get excited about the fact we're involved in a life that encompasses all of history. We are part of it. We're Acts Volume 21. And there's still more to come. How many of us grieve and get excited when we look at the pain of those around us and know we have something to offer them? Which can bring true relief. How many of us share the joy that should be in our lives with those the Lord places in our path about the fact that we have a family that loves us, the Lord, and are privileged to serve and work in His midst? Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is he who has made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness is to all generations. So, think about the person who's currently driving you nuts. And realize the issue isn't their effect on you. It's the need for the Lord's effect on them. And we may be the one the Lord's chosen to give them the truth. I don't know. By the way, that doesn't mean they'll accept it, does it? But we're the ones chosen maybe to give it to them. We know the truth. We know what's to come. We know those around us are living empty lives and then facing an eternity of suffering if they're not willing to come to the Lord. <coughs> Again, think about it. What we're doing, we're building for eternity. Everything we do for Him is going to last forever. Just us little average people that nobody ever heard of. The God of the universe loves, died for, and is giving us the opportunity to build something that's going to last forever. Who else can say that? Most powerful people in the world, if they don't know the Lord, 
may make positive changes, may make negative changes that'll last for one, two, three, five years, maybe. And we get a chance to build something that's going to last forever. So what do we need to do? We need to pray for boldness. To speak the truth in love to whom the Lord puts in our path. Instead of just trying to live life below the noticeable threshold. I don't know about you, but there are times, no, if I say this, how, is it, how are they going to feel about me? In other words, how is my behavior going to impact me, not how is it going to impact them, right? It's a tough one when you're raising kids, especially sometimes when it gets to be adult kids. But I don't want to lose them. I don't want to be their friend. I don't care if they're adults, you're not called to be their friend still. Love them enough to tell them the things they need to hear. In love. What they do with it, you have no control over. But isn't that what God does with us? Because he loves us. See, the purpose of prophecy isn't to become fearful about the future. And it isn't to guide along with the headlines to see what's been fulfilled today. No, it's to cause us to rejoice in the marvelous God we serve and to motivate us to do so. Mark 12, 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And boy, is that going to lower some of our anxiety levels if we take our eyes off the craziness. And I'm not saying we don't have things to be concerned about in our lives. We do. That's reality. Life doesn't go smoothly. We can't even communicate with ourselves effectively. How the heck are we going to communicate with somebody else? Right? And then wait till your mind starts going and you can't remember things. And then your communication becomes even weirder. <laughs> we desire God to be the center of our lives. But see, we become so overwhelmed with the real world that we shove him off the stage without even realizing we've done it. But like Daniel, we can prevent it by spending time in the Word, seeking God's will, being in prayer, being open to the work he has for us to do. And praise the Lord, he's placed a lot of opportunities. It's amazing if you start off the day by saying, Lord, help me be sensitive to what opportunities you put in my path, you'd be surprised the number that drop in. Because why? Because he sees you're open for it, or we're open for it, and also because we're more aware, we're looking. There are opportunities that come we simply don't see because we're so focused on other things. But by starting the day looking for those opportunities, hopefully that helps us be a little more sensitive when they do occur. And praise him as we are obedient in all we do and always suffer, then we'll realize we'll experience a blessing to us and through us. Because that's where the joy really comes when you see somebody, you have an opportunity to be a blessing for the Lord in their lives. That's really exciting. And that is a blessing. Paul says in Romans 5, 1 through 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, 
and through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. And notice when he says we rejoice in our sufferings, he's not saying we rejoice for the sufferings. He's saying we rejoice for what the sufferings bring to us from God. Endurance, character, and hope. Being filled with the Spirit. So, knowing what's coming, knowing people's needs of the Lord, what do we do? Well, what should we do? Walk daily, seeing people through God's eyes. That is, as people, his creations, who he loves, who though they are fallen, are fallen because of their need for him. The most messed up people are the ones that's most obvious in, but the ones that have it together are often the people who need him most. So, what are we called to do? Exactly what Jesus did. Love the unlovable and touch the untouchable. And we've got to do that in the spirit because out of ourselves we're going to go, yeah, right. And if you believe that, I've got a bridge outside. So, if we walk with him in the spirit, then tomorrow we walk with him on the streets of gold. And while the streets these days look a whole lot more like dark alleys in the wrong part of town, we don't need to be afraid because we walk in his light. <laughs>